Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in 1096 AD, Pope Urban II, I have a picture of him, there he is. I know you guys all know Pope Urban II. Pope Urban II sent out a call for the First Crusade. Islamic armies had taken over the Holy Land about 400 years earlier, and more recently, Turkish armies had taken over much of Asia Minor from the Byzantine Empire, and the Byzantine Emperor had asked for help. So the Pope sent out a call that anyone who would go fight in the Holy Land against the Islamic armies could win glory for Jesus and forgiveness for their sins. And thousands of people signed up, forming the army of the First Crusade. Now, if you read the stories of the First Crusade, if you go back and read the contemporary accounts, it's interesting. They weren't bad guys, right? They weren't bloodthirsty monsters or moral rejects. They'd just fallen into a typical way of thinking that if we had more swords for Jesus, then we could really do great things for Jesus and the kingdom of God would come. So the first crusade set out in 1098 AD, and despite the fact that they're supposed to help the Byzantine Empire, they quickly went past Byzantine territory and set their sights in the Holy Land. Now, after a few small battles, they came to the city of Antioch and got bogged down in this long siege, and finally made it through to Jerusalem in 1099, where they seized the city, they finally broke through the wall, and once they finally broke through, they killed every man, woman, and child that they could find in the city of Jerusalem. So there you go. That is the siege of Jerusalem in 1099 AD. And for a time, people convinced themselves the crusade was a success, right? After all, they took Jerusalem and set up a Christian kingdom in the Holy Land. But the slaughter of Jerusalem so disgusted the local rulers, the Muslim rulers that were there, that they got themselves organized and came back and retook Jerusalem, killing the crusaders who were there and putting a target on the back of the native Christians who had been living in the Holy Land for a thousand years. 
Western Europe would organize several more crusades, none of which were successful. Thousands of people were killed for no good reason. Thousands of Christians were actually captured in these, uh, in these crusades, and many were sold into slavery, where honestly, in the long run, they probably became Muslims. And it's been almost a thousand years since the first crusade, and when Westerners try to do anything in the Middle East, even like good humanitarian things, you know the first thing they're generally called? Crusaders, right? And it's been almost a thousand years since the first crusade, and when you try and talk about Christianity in 21st century America, what's the first objection you often get if you claim Christianity is a force for good in the world? The Crusades, right? The Crusaders set out with the best of intentions. And again, it, it really is interesting to read it because it's very human when you go and you read the, the first, uh, the primary sources. But that's what they were thinking. If we just had more swords for Jesus, we could really do great things for Jesus and the kingdom of God would come. And a thousand years later, we're still cleaning up. Their mess. Now, about 80 years after the First Crusade, while the First Crusades were still very much a thing, this guy was born. Who's that? St. Francis. That's right. What do we know about St. Francis? He wasn't born St. Francis. No, you're right. He wasn't even named Francis, but that's, a, that's an aside. We don't need to really get into that. Um, Mm -hmm. He likes birds. He likes birds, yeah. Francis was the son of a, a wealthy merchant. And um, when he was a young man, he actually tried to win his glory in battle. He set out on, on his horse. Uh, he got fancy new armor as a good, rich young man. I have a picture of him going into battle there. Next one there. Oh, there it is. Yep. And he goes off to battle, and this is a local skirmish, and he actually gets captured in his first battle, and he's held in prison for a year. He almost dies while he's in prison, and he actually has a conversion experience while he's in prison and decides to give his life to God. And after this happens, you know what he tries to do next? Having become a good Christian, to become a crusader, to give, now that he's a Christian, to give his sword for God. And there's a fascinating story. Francis gets his on his armor, he sets out on his horse, and he sets off for Rome in order to join the Crusades. And on his way, he has a vision from God telling him to turn around. I love this picture. This statue is actually right outside the, the cathedral in Assisi. Um, it, as far as I know, it's the only statue of someone dejected that I've ever seen. <laughs> but it actually gets the, at the tension of, of what we're talking about here. The Francis wanted to do something great, right? He wanted to bring the kingdom of God. But he wanted to do it by the sword, and God said no. Not knowing what to do to next, Francis started wandering in lonely places and hanging out in abandoned churches where he started to have visions of God. He eventually renounced everything he owned to live a life of radical simplicity, poverty, and prayer. Francis put away the sword, and he took up the cross, and he healed the sick, he cared for the poor, and preached to the birds. The Franciscan movement, started by a penniless man in rags, became one of the most influential movements of the Middle Ages. 
And in 1219, in the middle of the Fifth Crusade, while Christians were actively attacking Egypt, Francis decided to travel to Egypt to cross battle lines and to talk with the Sultan. There it is. There's an older picture of it. And here's a newer one that someone did more recently. Francis decided he would cross battle lines and talk to the Sultan and either bring him to Christianity or be martyred for his efforts. And it's hard to know exactly what happened. There's a lot of legend about it. You can read lots of stories about what their, this encounter was like. The Sultan probably didn't become a Christian, but apparently he was so impressed by Francis' simplicity and holiness, he said that if all Christians were like Francis, he would seriously consider it. And he asked Francis to pray for him, that he might live the sort of life of holiness that Francis was living. And likewise, the Sultan gave permission for the Franciscans to become preachers and protectors in the Holy Land, a role they still play to this day. 800 years after his death, we're still telling the story of St. Francis. We're still singing the songs that he wrote, still talking about his life. Francis has inspired great movements for social justice, from the civil rights movement to homeboy industries, which we've been reading about. Franciscans have brought Christianity to the far edges of the world. And if you want to convince a non-Christian that Christianity is a force for good in the world, who's one of the first people you would talk about? St. Francis. So two movements. One was well-funded, well-armed, and had the backing of kings and popes. The other was started by a penniless, non-violent hermit who was disowned by his parents and called himself Brother Ass. One took up the sword, the other took up the cross. Which do you think did more for the kingdom of God? So tonight we're on our fourth week on what Jesus taught about the cross. And we come to Jesus' famous phrase, put away the sword. Jesus had been telling the disciples for some time that they were headed to Jerusalem, right? Where there would be this fateful showdown with the powers that be. And despite Jesus consistently telling the disciples they'd have to go to Jerusalem, that he would have to go and suffer and die, it's apparent they didn't really get it. After all, they probably had the stories of Joshua in their head, of David, of the Maccabees, and this simple idea, again, if we just had more swords, we'd be able to do great things for Jesus and the kingdom of God would come. It's easy to buy into, right? How else is Caesar going to be thrown down? How else can true religion come? Nice guys finish last, right? Doesn't the end justify the means? If you want to set up a new kingdom, you need a sword. They clearly don't have imagination for anything else yet. So Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and he's already condemned the religious leaders. He's cleared the temple courts. He's declared that the temple will be destroyed. And so when the guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter's ready, right? It's go time. In verse 50 and 51 say this, Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But before things can escalate, Jesus says this, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. 
For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled to say it must happen in this way? Put your sword back in its place, or in its more famous version, put away the sword. Now the reality is the sword can draw blood, right? The sword can make kings and build kingdoms and empires. The sword can kill enemies and strike fear into opponents. But you know what the sword cannot do? The sword cannot bring about the kingdom of God. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. You might overthrow one kingdom for another, but they will still be the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus says, put away the sword. And yet Jesus is not powerless, right? He's not a, he's not a pansy. He says, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, which by Roman standards is 72,000 angels? This is important. The gospel is not just this movement of like niceness, right? It's not the sword versus like just be nice and hope everything works out. It's not a movement of niceness or passivity or sentimental love. The gospel is a movement of great power that stands up to violence and takes down Caesar and throws down the proud in order to elevate the poor and the humble, in order to free human beings from sin and war and oppression and chaos. And the gospel doesn't just do this in a metaphorical or spiritual sense. Sometimes when we see this, we say, well, they wanted a physical kingdom, but Jesus wanted a spiritual kingdom. That's not actually what Jesus is doing. The poor are actually supposed to be fed, right? Sinners are actually supposed to be set free from sin. The oppressed are actually supposed to be set free. The kingdom is very much in this world. It just plays by an entirely different set of rules. Amen? And this sort of kingdom can never be brought about by the sword. It only comes by the cross. And so Jesus says, put away the sword. And so he will go on trial before Pilate. And so he will wear the crown of thorns and accept the mockery of the soldiers and die on the cross. And for a time, it will look like the sword is won, that if you really want to get anything done in this world, you need to take up the sword. But then the resurrection happens, and the Holy Spirit comes, and the kingdom of God begins its march outward. And the followers of Jesus will not just trade one worldly kingdom for another. They will bring about something entirely different from the ways of this world. The kingdom and the glory and the power of God will go out, not by the sword, but by the cross. Amen. Amen. And despite the fact that we have the example of Jesus in the book of Acts... We still mess this up constantly, right? If we just had more swords for Jesus, you can take that. That's Christopher Columbus. We'll get to him in a second. Okay. If we just had more swords for Jesus, we would have more influence for Jesus. And the kingdom of God will be spread. Do you recognize that thinking? Like, it might not be swords, right? It might not be literal swords. It might be military, but it might also be senators or presidents or Supreme Court justices. 
It might be cultural influence or money or political organization. It might just be really big churches, right? If we just had more people, bigger buildings, better signs, then we could really do some stuff for Jesus. But for the first 300 years of the church, it had no worldly power. It had no swords. And the church was forced to grow by loving the poor and caring for widows and orphans, by prayer and seeking holiness, practicing radical generosity, taking care of prostitutes instead of exploiting them, and when needed, giving up one's life and martyrdom. And for 300 years, the church grew, having almost no worldly power to speak of. And then Constantine became a Christian, and for the first time ever, an army marched out under the banner of Christianity. And in many ways, 1,700 years later, this hasn't stopped. In 400 AD, Augustine began arguing that it was okay to forcibly convert people. And many people in Rome became Christians under threat of the sword. And for the first time in history, you could be a Christian and not be required to be like Jesus. And the church began its long struggle with nominalism. We might think that colonialism spread Christianity, right? There's, a, there's old Christopher Columbus. But in many places in Africa and Latin America, the hard work of actually spreading Christianity was done by people like the Franciscans, who often had to stand in the way of the colonial authorities and oftentimes gave their lives to do so, so that Christ could be preached. More recently, I think about the the war in Iraq. I remember when the war in Iraq started. Um, I was 23, and I remember hearing Christians have this idea that, like, maybe we could get rid of this Islamic government, right? And then Christianity would come to the Middle East. I don't know how much you guys know about Christianity in Iraq. When the war started in 2003, there were 1.2 million Christians in Iraq. Today, the best estimate says there's about 300,000. The war in Iraq has been an absolute disaster for the Christian community that was there. Led to a huge surge in violence against the native Christians of Iraq and put a target on their back. And if we want to get more reason, that's the Russian patriarch blessing missiles in Russia. How do you guys think this is going to turn out for the Russian church? And of course, in the United States, you know, we have become a far more secular nation in the past 50 years. And I understand that people want to do something about that. But by and large, the church's response has not been to take up the cross, right? It has not been to be humbled to be humbled in itself and become more like Christ. Instead, the church's response to loss of power has been what? To try and cling to power and grab power any way it can. To pass laws and pick politicians who look and smell nothing like Jesus, who are good at wielding power. And honestly, do you guys know anyone that's been converted by that? 
far as I know, the church's obsession with worldly power is the number one thing driving young people away. And it's not to say it isn't real. It's not to say we shouldn't care about a culture drifting away from Christ. It's not to say we shouldn't be heartbroken by that. But I came across this quote recently, and it it really struck me. This is from the Brothers Karamazov. He says, At some thoughts, one stands perplexed, above all at the sight of human sin, and wonders whether to combat it by force or by humble love. Always decide, I will combat it by humble love. If you resolve on that once and for all, you can conquer the whole world. Loving humility is a terrible force. It is the strongest of all things, and there is nothing else like it. I want you to sit with that for a second. Is that true? Because when we get into this stuff, it will always be framed as the sword is action and the other option is nothing. Or the other option is passivity or apathy or permissiveness or whatever. But this quote, like Jesus, tells us that there's another way. This is actually way more powerful and has way more ability to shape this world. Always decide, I will combat it by humble love. If you resolve on that once and for all, you can conquer the whole world. Loving humility is a terrible force. It is the strongest of all things, and there is nothing else like it. So when we look at our culture, when we look at secularism, when we look at people leaving the church and the loss of influence of the church, we can think about, can I put that in there again? Yeah, think about this. Which one do you want to be? Which one do you think will do more to advance the kingdom of God? At the end of the day, the kingdom of God will never come by the sword. It can only come by the cross. And so again, a lot of times when this stuff comes up, it'll be kind of framed in the the language of strength and action and we need to do something or even like masculinity right and it's framed that the opposite of the the sword is passivity or apathy but this brings me back to one of my favorite topics if you guys have been around for a while you've heard me talk about this the idea of left-handed power the idea that the gospel does actually have great power, that we are actually supposed to go out, that we're actually supposed to like stand against sin in this world. But we do so with a very different set of tools. And I owe these terms to Robert Catman. He talks about right-handed power versus left-handed power. You can see some of the, the categories there. We could probably add a bunch more to them. Vengeance versus forgiveness. Wealth versus renunciation. Argument versus listening. Ego versus self-denial. Violence versus martyrdom. Big versus deep. The sword versus the cross. Force versus humble love. Which side do you think is more powerful? You probably all know 
what I want you to answer, right? <laughs> I'm setting you up for the right answer here. This isn't, you know, actually a multiple choice thing. And in your soul, you probably know that's right. And then we come to the fork in the road where we actually have to make a decision and right-handed power is faster, right? Provides immediate gratification. Feels like we did something. It validates us before others, right? Like, look at my resume. Look at the things I did, the things I built, the things I changed. And honestly, people get behind you if you have right-handed power. But it's a shortcut at best and a selling out of the kingdom at worst. Left-handed power is often slower. It takes time to reveal itself. Its results are not always as easy to quantify. And oftentimes it involves some real pain or suffering on the front end. And so it takes some faith, right? It takes some faith to believe that if we choose the way of Jesus, the kingdom will come. I don't want to be naive. Right-handed power can do some damage, right? When the civil rights workers chose nonviolence, some were imprisoned, some were beaten, some were killed. The book of Revelation says that for a time, it will always appear like that is winning. It will always appear like Caesar is winning. Right-handed power usually wins round one. But the promise of Revelation is that in the end, Babylon will always fall. Babylon never lasts. So right-handed power can reshuffle the deck. It can overthrow governments and build empires. But if we see something like the civil rights movement, something like that, we see how that can actually change the world, actually change the consciousness of men, actually bring about the kingdom of God instead of just a shuffling of who's in charge. Right-handed power will always boast of its strength. But when we practice left-handed power in each of these, we actually open our hands. There's an aspect of self-emptying in all of these, right? We open our hands and we invite the Holy Spirit to come. We invite the power of God to come. And a much greater power comes in and begins to change the world. So when we start thinking, if we just had more swords or more power or more people or more money or more influence, we could do great things for Jesus. Just remember that Jesus was offered all the kingdoms of the world, right? And he turned it down to take up the cross. Because only the cross can bring about the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's go back to that quote one more time. In some thoughts, one stands perplexed, above all, at the sight of human sin, and wonders whether to combat it by force or by humble love. Always decide, I will combat it by humble love. If you resolve on that once and for all, you can conquer the whole world. Loving humility is a terrible force. It is the strongest of all things, and there is nothing like it. And this is exactly what Jesus does, right? He does it for this world, and he does it for you and me. Jesus could have crushed Pilate. He could have crushed the temple guard. He could have crushed you and me in our iniquity. 
Jesus at any time has 72,000 angels at his disposal who could have come to crush the sinners of the world. But Jesus chooses the cross. He chooses to save sinners rather than to crush them. Jesus chooses to save you and me out of our sin rather than to crush us within it. Jesus chooses loving humility, and loving humility is a terrible force. It is the strongest of all things, and there is nothing else like it. And he calls us to re- receive that, that even in the depths of our sin, we are, not con- we are not destroyed, we are not condemned, we are loved by a power, not with a powerless sentimental love, but with a fierce divine love that comes and wants to make all things new. And Christ calls us to to open our hands and receive that and let that fierce divine love come and change us and shake us up and make us completely new and then send us out in that love to do the exact same thing for our neighbors. To give away that radical, fierce, divine love until all things are made new. The sword may occasionally reshuffle the deck, and for a time it always claims to be the winner. But only the cross can change the world. And so we take up Jesus' calling to put away the sword. And as Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So go out this week and lose your life with Jesus. Go out this week and take up the cross. Go out this week and choose humble love. And if you resolve on that once and for all, you can conquer the whole world. Loving humility is a terrible force. It is the strongest of all things. And there is nothing like it. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.